We're right in the middle of number 10. Okay, we'll just go forward and I'll just read a paragraph or so and then we'll go back to it. This is about, um, well, well, I won't really go backwards, we'll just go forward. The line we just went through is man's greatest problem is his ego consciousness. And that the thing that, the mistake we make is to think that everything that happens to us affects us personally. We talked about that at great length last week. So, unfortunately, mankind sees everything as separate and individual. The Lord had to create that appearance. Ask yourself, however, why? I love this. Why is this a tree and you a human being? The answer is simple. Without that variety, there would be no play. It wouldn't interest you. If people saw that there was only one essence in everything, painting all the scenes, directing all the action, and acting all the parts, they would quickly tire of it. For the show to go on, there has to be activity and interest. It all has to seem real, hence this appearance of individuality. As long as man enjoys the play for its own sake, he will go on birth after birth, experiencing life's pleasures and pains. The Bhagavad Gita describes it as a wheel constantly turning. Wow. I think I'll just read a little more. To get off the wheel, you have to desire freedom very intensely. Then only will God release you. Your longing has to be fervent. If it is, and if you are determined, no more to want to play. Swami made a chant out of that phrase, which is such an awkward chant. I, I am, that's what he says, I am determined no more to want to play. It's very hard to say, but this is where he got it. The Lord has to release you. He tries to keep you here with tests, but in his higher aspect, aspect as the cosmic lover, he hates this show and wants you out of it. Why shouldn't he release you? Once he sees that you really want him alone and not his show, that you only want, that you want only freedom in him. The same essence, conscious life, is in you and in that tree over there. The tree, however, was put there, whereas some free will on your part made you who, you, who and what you are. Only the wise know just where predestination ends and free will begins. Meanwhile, you must keep on doing your best, according to your own clearest understanding. You must long for freedom as the drowning man longs for air. And that's not quite the end of it, but we'll stop there for the moment. I, I love this. You know, it's, it's a fascinating thought, really, that everything is made of the same essence, which we have in a theory. In theory, we understand that. But when we look at it, we see it all so differently. Ask yourself, why is this a tree and why are you a human being? The explanation he gives, he says the answer is simple. Without that variety, there would be no play. It wouldn't interest you. So you, you have this just impossible to unravel with your own mind, divine perspective on this, where there is some conscious will that wants to make this party go on. And some part of us gets engaged in that. And I, I think you can only understand that when you can understand it. But, but he does say this, if people saw that there was only one essence they would quickly tire of it. For the show to go on, there has to be activity and interest. It has to seem real. 
Hence this appearance of individuality. They have that wonderful phrase in uh, Sanskrit, lila, which doesn't have an exact equivalent in English. It means simply the divine play. And it has that sort of quality of um, light-heartedness about the whole story, which is so paradoxical to our actual experience of the story, isn't it? I have right now um, our attorney, John Parsons, who was our lawyer for 12 years. He, he cleared out his storage locker. And, he, and so I have 28 boxes of legal paper sitting in my hall right now to transfer up to the archive at Ananda Village. This is $13 million in 12 years. It's now all in 28 boxes. <laughs> and, uh, and somebody ca- ca- called a, a lot of the boxes. Instead of litigation, they called it legation. <laughs> Every time I go by that, I think, uh, we sure didn't experience it like that. But, of course, that's what it was. And, and that is, you know, the, the somewhat unsatisfactory but extremely important answer that the saints always give us. What is this creation about? It's just, they'll say, a play of God. And it's, it's like music. It's like dance. You know, a lot of times when you hear music or you see, you see people dancing, there's this... Um, I was thinking of it like this. There was this man named Gary Goldschneider. I don't know if he's still living or not. He lived up in Ananda, Nevada City for a long time. He was a very unusual and very talented man. I believe he has gone on to become an astrologer. But at this time, he was entirely focused on music. Uh, He was a pianist, and he had had committed to memory all of the Beethoven piano pieces. And he um, had a, a music for the people kind of attitude, and he put a piano in a truck and he drove around and he would take the piano down and he would sit in various places and he'd just play for hours and hours. I mean, I don't know if it was these were like events that he would schedule, but, and uh, it, was, it was marvelous when he would come to visit Swami because Swamiji rarely would meet anyone who was a peer in any area of life. But musically, Gary was so intent that they could have these really interesting conversations. And I remember sitting and trying to understand some of them when they were talking about very subtle nuances of the way sound operates and how it operates in music. And uh, there was a grand piano in Swami's house and at one point Gary just despaired of being able to say what he wanted to say and he just popped up from his seat and just dashed over to the piano and without there being any transition he just was immediately playing. And it was so um, impersonal. There, there, there was no uh, thought. He, was, he wasn't sitting down. He didn't arrange himself. He didn't lift his hands and then go like that. It was like there was no music and then there was music. It was like he just opened a window. And it was like the music had been blowing against the window the whole time. And he just raised the window. And all of a sudden the music came pouring into the room. And it was, it was so much about the music. I remember once when he performed and I said, the music was so beautiful. Oh, he said, people are always complimenting the pianist, but that is not the point. The point is the music. It was, it, that was how he was doing it. Well, the reason I'm telling you that whole elaborate story is that sometimes I think that's really what this whole creation is. It's like this, this because the music is happening and then it's not happening. Like as soon as he lifted his hands from the piano keys, where did it go? 
It was, it was so intriguing to me, even in that moment. Like, where did the music go? He opened it, he shut it. Just like that. It was complete, it was gone. And it, while it was there, it just roiled around and just filled all of us. But then it, it disappeared. And whenever the, the masters talk about escaping from this level of consciousness, that's how they talk about it. It's not like somebody has to forgive somebody. It's not like we we kind of like make peace with God for this trick he played on us. It's like it was never there. It just roiled around for a while and then it stopped. And it was always there. It was never there. It just is never what it appears to be. It's just energy moving. We have made all these decisions about it. You know that it's you and that it's me and that you're behaving this way and I feel that way and I made this mistake and you made that mistake and you owe it to me. And, you know, we, we, we've made all these decisions and we're so committed to those decisions. And it's no joke. It's, it's no joke at all to get out of those things. I was talking to someone about the whole syndrome, adult children of alcoholics, which is a not, not a, a light matter at all, where children are raised in an atmosphere where just certain things are in place and they don't have any perspective on whether or not this is peculiar or fair or not fair. And then with the child mind, they make all sorts of decisions about how to be safe, how to be effective, who I'm supposed to be as a person. And it's never, you know, there's no very window into that. Then they become adults and they're just acting out those same realities without ever having realized Um, what was imposed on them. What I'm saying by that only is it's not a joke. And it's not just a matter of saying, oh, well, I just won't do that anymore. It's like we're so uh, gripped by it that it simply is reality to us. But here Master just tells us, you know, you're just the same as the tree over there. And this whole business of individuality is just what God did so that we'll stay interested, so that we'll stay engaged. But when we suddenly see through it, it's just we're not interested anymore. I remember Swamiji talking about the whole illusion of sexuality and romance and men and women, which is a karma he acted out a little bit in front of us in this lifetime. It was a a, a karma he had to go through. And I remember him sitting at a table of people, and he it was all couples at the table, and he said, you know, I hate to say this to all of you, and I know there you all are. When you see through that illusion, he said, you can't imagine why it ever attracted you. He says, it just, it's just nothing that you think it is. But there it is. And he, I mean, he knew that all of us were completely trapped in it. But he, he, just, he said it almost with incredulity. Once you see through it, you just can't imagine why it ever attracted you. And, and the masters put these ideas out in front of us so that we'll, we'll have at least a vibration, something to compare ourselves to. We still have to live through our own destiny and we still have to come to peace with our own destiny, whatever that might be. But at the same time, a piece of us needs to always have that word lila in mind. Oh, this is just the play of God. This is how God is also choosing to play through me at this time. And as we go forward with this, it's, I mean, it's very, where this leads is, um, 
as long as man enjoys the play for its own sake, he will go on birth after birth, experiencing life's pleasures and pains. And we don't really think we're enjoying the play for its own sake, or we like to think we're not, but we are. And we just, we find something, it does something for us that we are not content to do without. I... It's the strangest razor's edge that we have to walk because we have to also be extremely elevated in our thinking. And, and we, we also have to deeply believe in our ability to transcend. But we can never become insincere or inauthentic because then we have just doubled our problem. Then we have not only our attraction to maya, but we have our pretense that we're not attracted to Maya, <laughs> which is uh, very, very complicated. So the, the, the beginning of ways of getting out of this, this is what the whole path is all about. We do sadhana, we meditate, we have an experience of consciousness outside of this. We do selfless service. The, the seva, the, the serving and the giving of our energy, as Swami wrote in the Patanjali commentary, is one of the best ways to overcome the ego. Because what we do is we're always affirming that we are more than our individuality. When we're, when we're keeping our energy all for ourselves, then it just, you know, this is what I prefer, this is what I want. We get our little world set up just the way we want it, and we allow in only what we're going to allow in. And whether we're, you know, curled up in darkness or whatever we're doing, it's just everything that affirms that. But when we go out and give and embrace and serve and share and this is we share we share financially we share our time you know all of these are ways of saying who am i what am i responsible for oftentimes um, when we talk about tithing and financial support you know that's just that's just like it's such a um, especially tithing because it's most challenging to give a full 10% of what you earn but who am i and what am i responsible for Am I just responsible for me and the family that I've created around me and the home that I've made? Or am I as much responsible for God's house, so to speak, God's family, God's work, as I am for what I call myself? And all of the issues that that always brings up for people are really the cutting edge of who do I think I am? Where does my energy come from? And we try consistently. I try periodically. I haven't tried in a long while to persuade people to tithe, to give a percentage of your income, because that takes it away from saying, oh, I can afford this. Well, you know, I have extra. I've taken care of myself, and now I'll give what's over, leftovers for you. Instead of saying, you know, we're, we're in this together, God, and a percentage of what I earn belongs to you, and I will simply get along with the rest, because this percentage is not mine. You know, it's very, I'm, uh, I'm back into the position that I was in earlier in my life, you know, where suddenly when income comes into me, I have, I have all this money sometimes now in cash, and it's like my policy always was, you know, if I, somebody gives me $30 for counseling, the first thing I do is I take $3 and put it into an envelope for God. You know, just, I don't, I mean, I don't, I never even like to do it in the bank or with a check. It's just like whatever comes into my hand, the moment it's in my hand, I take 10% of it and I just put it somewhere else. So it doesn't even live with me. 
It's like, oh, here's mine and here's yours. And I love that. And you know you're, you always are there and you don't quite want to do it. Well, somebody gave me a thousand dollars, I have to give away a whole hundred dollars. Somebody gave a million dollars, I have to give away a hundred thousand. You know, it's always, it's, what I love about tithing is people who are poor think that it's, it's startling because it seems like a lot. And people who are rich think it's startling because it seems like a lot. But who, who are we? And, and how long do we want this to go on? We were having a discussion this morning about right and wrong attitudes, and somebody was talking about wrong attitudes. I said, yeah, that's a very common attitude. That's called the path of reincarnation, <laughs> where I just hold to this point of view. So let us not be surprised, you know, when we hold to all these things. We don't have to be ashamed either. But let's just be realistic. I'm working on it. But let's see who we really are. To get off the wheel, you have to desire freedom very intensely. Then only will God release you. Your longing has to be fervent. Um, If it is, and if you are determined no more, determined no more to want to play. (laughs) That's a whole lot of different words there, which I I think makes it really terrible chant, but Swami really wrote it because the words are so hard. But it's, it's, it's like I'm determined to overcome my desire, is what we're really saying. And the desire to play is the desire to keep enjoying all the things that come with being an ego. My personal relationships, my self-aggrandizement, my setting up my little world and having it just my way. I mean, it's, it's such fun to just watch how that individually plays, individuality plays itself out. But I'm determined no more to want to do this. And, and sometimes we can only say that to God. It's not to say, I don't want to do it, but I don't want to want to do it anymore. It's a very important sentiment. That's why Swami wrote the song. He tries to keep you here with tests. It's very interesting. What do, how is, I, I, I have a little trouble understanding that. He tries to keep you here with tests, but is in his higher aspect as the cosmic lover, he hates this show. What are tests? Tests are things that cause you to feel averse toward this Creation, I suppose tests are things that also cause you to want to stay. Everybody loves you. You got that brand new car. You know, you finally got the haircut that you really wanted. I mean, it's just, isn't it just amazing how every little piece of it, do you just play with it? Every little thing. So I'm, but it was interesting because you see Swami and Master both, the simplest way to deal with this is to shave your head and to just live in a cave. But, Swami never lived like that. And when in the beginning years of Ananda, this is a more subtle challenge we have because it's Dwapar Yuga rising and because we're the second generation of an avatar. And so it's different. If it's, if it's, if it's Kali Yuga descending, you don't have to deal with the world because the world is just literally going to hell in a handbasket and it's going to stay there for a long time and there's just nothing you can do about it. There's no point in building institutions because the barbarians are about to come and destroy everything. So you go off into monasteries and you go off into caves and you become a little uh, community of desert fathers just way out somewhere and you're living underground in tombs and you just don't pay any attention to it because there's no no mass that you can uplift. And also the world is so um, dense, matter is so dense at that point that you can't live in both worlds. And then you get to just live in hair shirts and shave your head and animal skins and 
eat dates and drink from the well. And some people may think that's really horrible. Others think, what a relief. You know, just to put it aside. When we first started at Ananda Village, because everything was so primitive, um, there was a certain opportunity to define our path by very primitive living. And some people pushed that even further and stopped combing their hair and stopped wearing shoes and sometimes tried to live without heat or, you know, just lived on fruits. I mean, just all these different things that you can sort of list out. Different people um, pushed it that way because there's, you know, a memory of being uh, a cave ascetic. And uh, as I said, some people think it's awful. Others find it very attractive. But Swamiji never supported that. And as soon as he was able, he began to create um, involvement. You know, he, he, he would read us P.G. Woodhouse stories and he would, would, he would have uh, celebrations and he would have, uh, di- serve nice dinners and he would try to make things beautiful and he bought wonderful Kashmiri fur- carved furniture from Kashmir and he starts thinking about creating a dormitory where every room represents a different country and he starts bringing back relics from all over the world and buys beautiful chandeliers for his house and you know a lot of uh, us are you know just what is this it seems so contradictory but what he's talking about there was a line in here that's exactly where it is Um, let me see oh as long as man enjoys the play for its own sake and see that's the key line here Swami wasn't enjoying the play for its own sake. It was he was he was standing there and he was saying to Master inwardly, "What does what is needed for your work at this time?" And that was when he was. I remember in the it must have been the seventies when he had this car. I think he was he was either driving Air Force One, which was this uh, big blue Chevrolet that we'd gotten from a, a military auction. That, that had been painted over but faintly still said Air Force on the side, so we called it Air Force One. It was a junker when we bought it. It was $75. We actually bought two, one to cannibalize for parts and one for him to drive. One of those, you know, big old American cars like this. He was either driving that or he was driving uh, this little uh, green Volkswagen Bug, but I think it was the Air Force One. And we went to an event in San Francisco where all of the teachers of that time, you know, it was Sachidananda and... Yogi Bhajan and the whole crowd that in the 70s was a huge scene here. And uh, there was a reception for the whole crowd up in, is it St. Francis Wood? Is that, it's a very classy neighborhood up there. We arrived a little bit late. We pull up in our, I believe it must have been our Chevrolet because there were too many of us in the car for it to to be the Volkswagen. And (laughs) Mercedes, Mercedes, Cadillacs. You know, everybody had, all these teachers had come in these really classy cars and we pull up in this Chevrolet I saw me was probably driving himself you know we park a few blocks away because we were late and then we walk past car after car after car and oddly at the end of that Swami turns and he says I have to get a new car and he wasn't kidding he said in and this were his words I loved it he said in America he said in India they would respect me for having this car he said, but in America, where money is so easy to come by, they will assume that if I have to drive a car like this, there's something wrong with what I'm teaching. And so he went out and he very carefully selected this silver Ford. 
which was kind of like designed to look classier and more expensive than it was. I'm not sure whether it, whether it was when he bought that Ford or a different time, but he, there was a car he liked more that was very comfortable. I think it was maybe a different car. He really liked it because it was really comfortable and he was having a lot of trouble with his hips. So they gave him the brochure on it and he, he went home to look at it. He said, everybody in the advertisement for that car looks so smug and self-satisfied <laughs> that they were able to afford that car. He said, I just couldn't buy it. <laughs> and he went and got something else instead that was just a little more. But that first car, it was very carefully selected because it looked classier than it was. But just so that he could just play it. And what he was teaching us is actually, in a very interesting way, you see the surrender of individuality. Because it wasn't a question of what he wanted. It was a question of what the work needed from him. Which is exactly the opposite of what do I want. In fact, it's very interesting because Swami went to India in 1958. He was sent there by SRF and he lived there for four years. And during that time he spent a lot of time with Anandamui Ma and he met many um, great saints. And, and he lived with um, Rani Bon, who was uh, and her family in Delhi, and she was a very um, prominent person. Her family was very prominent, and she and her son Indu really helped Swami. He had a really um, he loved being in India on in a certain level because it it it's home. I mean, there's a for many of us uh, our the soul has no culture, but the the ancient um, reality of India is a very um, living presence for many of us, and there's just something about that country. Not for everyone, but for many of us, it's no matter what it seems like, it's just home. As Swami says, it just comes out of the soil. Uh, and he, you know, became quite uh, immersed in the very most refined devotional aspects of it. He learned many learned to sing many of the Indian bhajans and um, and when he first came back, which was you know the first in the early sixties when Ananda was first starting, he did it all in a very Indian way. We had that ashram up uh, where the seclusion retreat is now. It was so isolated. Um, the road is still bad, but it was much worse then, and we had no uh, communication from there. So when you were there, you were nowhere. No telephones, it just, and no you know, satellite phones, I mean, cell phones, none of that existed. And so we, he just, we just created this little, our version of uh, Indian ashram. And Swami would wear um, a dhoti. All summer long, he would just go around in a dhoti, often with a bare chest and a rudrakshamala. You see photographs of him like that, because that was just the Indian sadhu way. And he set the whole thing up like an ashram. I didn't know that until I went to India. And we did a lot of Indian, he led a lot of Indian chants. And, but at a certain point, he just said he had to stop. He just had to stop living that incarnation because that's not the incarnation he was asked to live. He said because he would so easily fall into that bhav, that devotional mood, that he just couldn't relate to the Western world. And yet he had to. And that's, it's not for its own sake. 
you know, so then he puts on a suit and a tie and he cuts his hair shorter and he starts calling himself Donald Walters and for a while he stops giving Indian names and he goes to San Francisco and rents a mansion and um, just goes a whole different direction. Now, all of it is tapasya. So it's not really what you're doing, it's why you're doing it. And he just lived completely, I'm a disciple and I'm here to serve. And so we have this razor's edge to walk where we have to appear normal and behave in a slightly more normal manner but not ever become engaged in it out of desire for doing it. And no, that's not easy. And we cross the line. We're always crossing the line and having to come back. So what's the most important thing to us? I mean, it's simpler... I remember when I, uh, you know, when I had to stop being poor. It was very, I was very frightened of not being poor because as long as I was poor, really poor, I was certain of my spirituality. If I became comfortable, that I couldn't, I couldn't be sure anymore. Now, let me phrase that differently. As long as I looked right, I could pretend I was right. <laughs> but if I began to look like I was living an ordinary life, I had to make sure that I really wasn't. Now that's that was really the point. It just became it became more of a demand because I I didn't have form then. I only had the spirit. And you know we all play it out. You have to desire freedom very intensely. Then only will God release you. Um, then he says, in his higher aspect as the cosmic lover, he hates the show and wants you out of it. Why shouldn't he release you? once he sees that you really want him alone. The thing about spiritual truth is uh, you can't... Uh, it just is what it is. It's metaphysics. It's like you, you're, you will have as much freedom as you have. We, we, we're so used to being able to bargain. There was a, a, a silly teenage comedy in which this girl, teenage girl, her husband was a lit- her uh, father was a, a lawyer. He was a litigator. You know, he was a real fierce lawyer, big, the rich family, so on. She, her father, her mother had died or something, and and her the grades she actually got in school were not that good. But she systematically went to every one of her teachers and persuaded her teachers to raise her grades. So when she came home and pre- this is just a movie, she presents her report card to her father. She told him, you know, that the grades she had there were not really the grades she'd earned, but the grades she had persuaded her teachers to give her. And he said, "Honey, I couldn't be more proud of you than if these were your actual grades." <laughs> you know, it's just I've not lost the point of why I brought that up, but you know, we're just—I uh, completely lost the point. Oh. I have no idea why I said that. I had a reason for saying it, but now I just... Pardon me? Negotiating. Negotiating. Oh, yes, that's right. That's right. It just has to be exactly what it is. And you know, so we, we really... There's no point in even spending... There's no point in spending any time on trying to behave as we ought to behave um, for the sake of uh, even fooling ourselves. We have to just know exactly where we stand, you know, then make a conscious decision that I, I choose, you know, this is what I want, this is what I'm inclined, but I consciously choose to go in this direction. 
Not, oh, I feel so terrible, I ought to go in this direction. Or what if somebody finds out? You know, Ananda, the spiritual family is uh, a great blessing and also a serious challenge because uh, we like to hide. We somehow imagine that if we... I don't know who we're hiding from, but I mean, I I vividly recall very early in my spiritual life, we had the dining room and the kitchen. It's all been torn down now. And there was this little pathway in between, and there was a little bulletin board there. And I remember standing at that bulletin board, conscious of the fact, I don't know why, but I was looking at something on that board, and I realized that every single person in this community was going to know everything that was going on with me from that point onward. I was very intuitive myself and very sensitive, and I could tell what was going on around me with people. And I just occurred to me that they all were too. And that either I surrendered completely to that reality, or I was going to have to leave that day. Because there was no middle ground. So, so I had to actually ask, well, wh- why would I want to hide? Because, you know, it's just like how children are. They'll, they'll play hide-and-seek with you, and they'll put themselves under the couch cushions, you know, and there's this huge lump of the couch cushions, and their little feet are sticking out. And they'll say, Mommy, Mommy, try to find me. Oh, where is little Sally? Where could she be? And that's what we sort of imagine. We'll just hide over here, and because I put something over my head, my guru bhais and my guru don't know what's going on. First of all, they do. And secondly, why would you not want them to know? See, it's all about that individuality. And the tests come in very many different ways. God just tests us to see which way we'll break. You know, which, what, meaning, that's how, how Master put it, you know, you just get pushed to the point, do you fall into the side of trust and love for God, or do you fall into the side of grabbing onto that individuality and holding onto it a little longer? God wants us to be free as the cosmic lover. He hates the show and wants us out of it. Why shouldn't he release us? But he simply can't. You know, you can't be free if you're holding on like this. There's this, this incredible picture of the way it works when you go through the tunnel of light. Um, which, I, you've heard this, but think about it from this perspective. The story of Paula, who, who died of cancer eventually, but had a near-death experience while she was buying clothes for the, for the store that she ran for Ananda. She had a cough, and she was sipping cough medicine that had codeine in it. And she was kind of casual about things, and she, was, she overdosed. She's alone in a hotel room. She's overdosed on codeine cough medicine. She's so out of it now, she can't really sort anything out. She's, you know, there's a couple of other people with her, but she has to get to the phone and call them, and all she, she's just beginning to die. Paula had a great affection for clothes, had marvelous taste, had a, a closet, just closets. After she died, I mean, it just like every woman in the community, their wardrobe was greatly upgraded just from the things, you know. I had earrings and many things of hers. And, um, so she's dying and she's, uh, she goes, she crawls into the bathroom and puts water on her face. This is her thing. And she's actually, as she put, she's leaning on the toilet bowl. It's such a story. She's leaning on the toilet bowl, looking into the toilet bowl. And across it, she begins to see the tunnel of light. And she has sort of a sense of humor, I'm sure, even in a near-death experience. 
God, she said, am I going to die looking into a toilet bowl? <laughs> just like, it was just so pathetic. Even in the moment, she thought it was so pathetic. And, but she's, she's just going out in the tunnel of light. She's on her way, and she remembers an outfit that she had put on layaway at the show that day. She thinks about these clothes, and she comes out of the tunnel like that. I mean, it saved her life. I asked her whether she bought it or not. I, think, I was thinking, this outfit saved my life. I'm going to buy it and wear it every day. But instead she said, no way. I did not buy that outfit. But you see, that's how it works. This is the story here. You, you see that light and you start going toward it. Because when we die, we have a choice, as Master describes it. The medulla is the seat of ego. The spiritual eye is the seat of Christ consciousness. These are the opposite poles of the same chakra. So this is the sixth chakra, the seventh being here, but you have to open this one before this one. We die going up the spine, and the chakras um, close down, and the energy moves up. And then Master says, when it it gets to the sixth chakra, if we are completely ego-identified, and our individuality is defined by the body, which is now about to tank... It's over. As he puts it, we fall backwards into the comfortable position of ego consciousness and we more or less exit that way and our individuality remains intact. And death is merely changing from one uh, individuality to another. If we have meditated, if we have an understanding of ourselves as not being dependent upon our physical reality to continue to exist... Now, of course, the more deliberate and conscious that is, the more powerful it is. But many people who know nothing about yoga yet are very generous or very spiritually minded or very expansive. So their sense of self is much more centered here whether they know it or not. And so when the energy reaches the sixth chakra, it will, it will rise. I'm sure this is not an absolute because you, many people are in between somewhere so that you go out on a higher vibration. But that's how Master describes it. You sink backwards or you rise in death. But what keeps you from going out into the light is the same thing that keeps you here all the time. You're you're beginning to lose your individuality and what has preoccupied you? Your children, your house, your diamond ring, your husband, your new car your deep regret that you have been repeating over to over to yourself for such a long time. Oh, I'm so sorry I did this. I so wish I hadn't done that. You know, it's not, it's what Swami says, it's, it's longing and regret. Longing and regret. That's what, that's what brings you back. So you start down the tunnel and instead of being able to exit completely, I'm going to call it that way, through that, position, all these little things start pulling at you. And, you're, and there's no faking it at that point. When very early, when I was very early on the spiritual path, 19 years old, this is the very beginning, we, we, there was this little coterie of us who were all reading Ramakrishna's books and talking every day about Vedanta. We heard that sound was, your hearing was the last thing that would go, and you wanted to go out listening to the Om. So my friend figured out, he just put on this, you know, headphones and that he would play, he would actually play the sound of the uh, Indy 500. <laughs> room, room, room. 
the sound of that, but he would just listen to a, the whirring sound of the om. And he would cheat, cheat death that way. I mean, it was just ridiculous, and we all knew it was, but still. But you can't, because it, 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 you're held, you're defined by that. And all those little pieces will call you. There's an amazing story about Ramana Maharshi, and I don't have this quite clear. It, it was, there, were, there were two people who died. One was his mother, and the other was a close disciple. And so I, can't, I don't know which was which, but this was the, the story. He sat with that person while they were dying and helped them step by step. You know, just help them release when each of those, when they were heading that way and each of those attachments would come up, he, how he helped them, I don't know. But he helped them release. And then whoever it was had, was gone. And then Ramana Maharshi went away to do the ritual bath or whatever he did. And he said, in, the, in that moment when he turned his attention away, a little bit of karma grabbed him and, and so it's, he, he wasn't quite freed. And Ramana Maharshi said, oh, if I had only stayed, you know, that I, I just, I, I let my guard down too soon. Of course, it was the disciples' karma. So when the next person died, which I think then was his mother, he stayed, you know, he, he stayed till he was absolutely certain. But just in that last moment, just a little bit will grab you like that. So this is why we have to practice. I mean, this is, this is the life we have now, the karma we have now, the attachments, all of that. We brought it. This is what it says in the next line. Predestination, meaning our own actions, we're just, we, we got ourselves here. This is what we're doing because it was, as Master said, everything, I love this one, everything that happens in your life is prenatal or postnatal conditioning. <laughs> Either happened before you were born or after you were born, and that's why you feel this way. But what, what brought us into all of that? Well, it was because the last time we went out, whatever unfinished business there was, it pulled us right to where we needed to go next. But the, the, the moment of death is a very serious opportunity for, you know, we're, we're, we have a, a chance to choose. We're not going to be able to choose way outside of what we have been choosing all along. But it, it's, it's a concentrated moment. That's why Swami said you shouldn't do organ donation or anything like that because it, the, people come in too soon. Just even, even when you know you're almost gone or you think you're gone, if they come in and start harvesting your organs, start cutting your body to pieces while there's still enough life force for them to be viable, that means that there's, you're still there. And if you're still there, as Swami said, and this has been your body this whole time, and they come in and literally start hacking it to bits, and, you know, doctors are not delicate or necessarily real respectful about it. They're just eager to get those organs out and get them into somebody else. And, you know, you don't want that vibration when you're just trying to let go. You know, all of a sudden you'll... Swami even actually went so far as that you could become a ghost for a time because you'd get so confused. You were just about to leave and then this thing that you're attached to, you start grabbing back for it, but you can't be in that anymore either. You can get caught. I, mean, I don't mean to frighten you. Well, I do, but not really. <laughs> I don't want you to think badly if other people have done it because it seems like a generous thing to do. But he was quite emphatic. But that's why Swamiji says every night you should visualize this divine fire and you should throw into that fire everything, everything you're attached to. It's a practice as for the final exam. 
because if you can if you can go through that transition well then you you know ideally you never incarnate again but you certainly in, incarnate much more more free you get it's the final exam you get the benefit of everything that you've done up until this point and don't think merely because for example the body is um, uh, given drugs that that prevents the soul consciousness from participating there's a, a tremendous separation between body and soul at that point and so you know sometimes the body just has to be calmed down and given morphine or whatever it is but that that doesn't touch the soul the soul is not physical the brain can be medicated but the soul's not medicated so it, and those are small points compared to uh, all the part that we're talking about now so Let's take a break, and then if you have questions, we'll start with those when we come back. Do we have any uh, questions or comments? Yes, Tom. Uh, The microphone is on the ground there. Pass it over, please. I don't know how relative this is, but it occurred to me that in we we spend so much time, and part of this is sort of linking back to the Patanjali experience. We spend so much time so um, wonderfully explaining what's not real. You know, you know, we talk about all this and that, and we do this, but it none of this like. And you know, Patanjali's thing is, what's the definition of ignorance? You keep believing that what is not real is real, and and I don't. I'm not. This is not an opinion or anything, but just like, you know, we're so darn good at explaining and dissecting everything that's not real. Anyway. Yes, there you have it. Um, you know, it's a, very, it's a very complicated... Somebody was speaking to me, and I, I, forgive me, I don't remember who was saying it, but there was a... a, a oh, it was you, Gary. You were talking about a, the, a, do, a doctor at Stanford, a neurologist, and when the question of reincarnation came up, he got so excited because, wow, if he gets to come back, he'll even be a better doctor the next time. But, I mean, in a sense, it was a laudable ambition, but, you know, it was somebody who's very interested in what they're doing and recognizes that there's no limit to their capability, and so they'll just keep getting better and better. That's the path of reincarnation. But it's not terrible, because that is the way to freedom. Here's what he says. Um, uh, Only the wise know where predestination ends and free will begins. Meanwhile, you must keep on doing your best according to your own clearest understanding. But see, what happens is people use philosophy in a way to justify their tamas. And that was, uh, for me at least, a very interesting part of back when we were doing the Bhagavad Gita, where there's that little uh, section in the Gita which deals with the three gunas, and tamas is the darkening quality that keeps us bound. And sattva is the divine quality, the, the uplifted qualities that, that bring us closer to, um, to, to the vibration of, of God consciousness, and tamas is the farthest away. The problem is that tamasic and sattvic energy, as they say sometimes, can look the same. You have a yogi sitting motionless in meditation, and you have someone dead drunk and passed out, and they're both doing nothing, apparently just sitting there. But one of them, their consciousness is completely shut down, and the other one, their consciousness is completely expanded. So what happens is we get a little philosophy, and we have just enough philosophy for it to be dangerous. Well, what does it matter? 
What does it matter what happens in this world? It's all unreal anyway. And so we become lazy. Or, we, or we're very afraid to risk, to, to, to open our hearts to people, to allow people to see us. So we just decide, well, you know, relationships are just a delusion anyway. So we use a philosophy that's actually justifying a tamasic action because the quality of that action is actually contractive and we're in reinforcing it. We're not being sattvic. And between sattvic and raj- uh, tamasic is rajasic. And rajasic is active. And so we have to go from tamasic to be putting out a great deal of energy because until we have overcome the inclination to just want to sink back into sloth and lethargy, that's not really sattvic. We have to choose to be still rather than just be too lazy to be active. And so it, it, it's, uh, that's why you, you don't cast pearls before swine. <laughs> and because it's not good for the swine. Because too much, in the, in, in the ideal societies, um, the, the original caste system, when the caste system was based on a real perception of people's capabilities to understand spiritual truth, you did not give these high teachings to people who would, who would not understand it in the right way and would simply abuse it. And so so that's, that's where you get involved here. In the meantime, you have to do your best with the clearest energy you have. Excellence is a requirement on the spiritual path, not because what you're doing matters, but because the qualities that keep you from being excellent are tamasic and must be overcome. And once you overcome that tamasic inclination, then you have the right to put it aside. But you can't put it aside until you have... And that doesn't mean, as, you know, as Swami met someone said, you know, well, you have to do everything, so I'm going to be a millionaire in this life. You don't have to become a millionaire, but you have to overcome the tamasic inclination in you. And be very, very careful about how you're using it. So, we, you know, we talked all that, all that time about, we had about the unreality of this world, but... See, and this is where service, and especially serving your guru, and especially paying attention to what your guru is asking of you. And on our particular path, we are not allowed to just withdraw from the world, and we are not allowed even just to think about our own salvation, not being on this path as Swami's children. Because Swamiji's responsibility was to make this work viable. There have been other disciples of this path, even the other disciples of Master, do not have the responsibility that Swami has. It was Swami's responsibility. I was saying to some of you all this morning, Swamiji, he, he's, he repeated something many times, but it's, and he actually even said these words, but it only has just clicked into my own understanding. Master's work was never organized. It was, it was there, but even the monastery, which you know now has become such a definition of what, what SRF is doing, the organization master founded, it was never organized at all. Swami was the one who organized it. And then afterwards, Swami organized the centers and he organized the churches and he organized the lay disciple order and he put the whole thing together. Master had it, but Swami was the one who put it together in a way that really was going to function because that's his job. The other disciples who were there as, as Swami himself put it, we're there to help Master in his own life to do his work. 
But what was going to come after was really Swami's job, as it was when he was Henry I to William, and as it was when he was Alfonso to Ferdinand, and who knows how many other times. And for better or worse, we're Swami's children. So it's also our job, whether or not you're as actively engaged in it as I am, as an example, it nonetheless defines the way we have to approach it. And that's, for our, I, think, I think that's our good luck. Because we're just not allowed to sink back into a tamasic. I mean, if we are sufficiently advanced to really not have any outward work to do, that's different. But for all of us, we get to be challenged. Partly because, you see, we are caught in this uh, civilization, which is so rajasic and so active and so outward pulling. As I was saying at the Guru retreat, when Swami said, how can you expect your mind not to be restless? We're all so busy. But we have to develop purity of heart. And purity of heart is how much you give. What do you really love and how much do you give? And because our expression of discipleship and this work is extremely service-oriented and extremely oriented towards serving the world in a spiritual way, because we're not, you know, we're not building houses for impoverished people and we're not running soup kitchens and we're not turning our sanctuary into a a, a dormitory for homeless. I mean, there's lots of ways to serve. But our way to serve is, to, is to, to serve this work and to make this work available and to, give, to help people to have deep experiences. It's very specific. And the more we engage in it, the more we dissolve our individuality. And, and the other side of it, and this is the last point about all of this, you know, you've heard this also, but it's important in the context. When Swami was asked, what is the purpose of Ananda? His response, his famous response was to have fun. And after we all stopped laughing, because it seemed such a ridiculous answer, because we expected something much more pretentious, he said, but you have to understand what we consider to be fun. And he said, what we consider to be fun is to be close to Divine Mother and then to share that joy with everyone. And that really is fun. And, and so it's, are we playing for its own sake? Are we enjoying the play for its own sake? Are we engaged in the lila for the sake of helping others to rise above it? Very different reasons. What do we consider fun? We consider it fun to feel God's presence and then to help others to feel God's presence. And like like our, our Saturday night event, which I, I, it's a life-changing event. And it takes so many people to be engaged in it and... Uh, even just coming and just sitting there with devotion, it just creates this power that everyone steps into. And when you step out of it, um, you're different. Even if you revert a little bit, some piece of you has been shifted. Every time we touch into the divine for real, um, that stays with it. As Swami said, when we're, when we're finally liberated, he said, you look back at, at, that, at the moment of liberation you look back at all your incarnations and you realize that only at those moments when you genuinely touched into the divine, he said, those are the only things that were real. Everything else, was, everything else didn't even happen. It's quite something to think about that. And I, what I love when I think about that is I try to think about what moments will I remember? What were the real moments? 
Amazing to think of, isn't it? If you ever had a, a true superconscious dream or anything like that, you know, it's always with you. At the moment of death, is that what you're going to be thinking about? What is real? These are wonderful things to meditate on. Any questions or comments? David, uh, here's the microphone. It's right behind you. Um, you. You spoke a few times about how as we're moving towards death or at the moment of death, a desire can pull us back. Um, is there also a play of a fear of falling into the abyss? You know, just letting go of everything and the fear that comes with that? Well, that's, um, that's an attachment to the ego as it is and, and a lack of faith in God and a, a lack of faith, a lack of faith and or experience um, that I exist beyond my ego familiarity. Yeah, there's lots of, I mean, fear, fear. He, Swami says longing and resentment, but longing, uh, you long for something means that you fear to lose it. So you long for the comfort of the familiar. I mean, the unfamiliar. I remember when I had some teeny tiny little experience in meditation and I was talking to Swami about it and I was sort of talking and he just, you know, he cut right to it. He said, don't be afraid. My other voice said, I'm not afraid. <laughs> I was just tense. I'm not afraid. And it was as soon as I heard my voice, I thought, oh, yeah, that's right. Just like the familiar began to shift and my response was, I was afraid. And then he very sweetly just said, don't worry, you'll get used to it. Which is true. You know, it's often you just, any place that's unfamiliar, you, you, you leave America and go to a country you've never been to, you're nervous until you realize it's okay. So when you leave the country of your own consciousness as it normally is, into the unfamiliar, you, you want to come back. Even uh, Arjuna and Krishna, that beautiful thing, Krishna shows Arjuna his infinite form and then Krishna Arjuna asks Krishna to come back and be Krishna again just come back and be my friend that may be true but I want you as I am used to loving you I mean that was a divine Leela but, but he was also telling us the truth you know, so, so what, that's what leads to, ne- to the next one which I um, you must long for freedom as the drowning man longs for air um this is this is not something we need. We should play games with. We should not whip ourselves up into emotional frenzies. Although it's better to do that than not than to not care. But you know, this is a deep and sincere longing. This isn't just talking a good story. You know, this is really uh, it's this is very serious. So we we just we have to be very deep and very sincere and. This is how they always put it. As you have to want God as much as a drowning man wants air. And, and think about it. How, how, how many times we want God a little more than the bagel in the refrigerator. Or, you know, it's too much trouble to go there. It's too much trouble to do this. I'm a little too tired to do that. I'd rather watch a movie. I'm not even criticizing you for that. Don't hear that incorrectly. I'm just saying, let's just be realistic. And let's be deeply sincere about what we do want and recognize that we're on a journey here. Because we have to pray for the right thing. It, 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 if, we're, if we're asking God to, you know, for something over here, and we keep wanting Him to give us this, when actually what we need is a place to put our foot here, 
You know, so it's, it's also we have to just say, you know, you know my heart better than I know my heart. I, there, I had an exchange with Swamiji once, which was really... He, he said, how are you? I said, I, I, I'm doing fine. Are you? He said. I said, am I? Like that? And then it was like... Um, It was sort of like, I wasn't not okay, but I was about to not be okay. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. And Swami, Swami picked the wave up just before I did. I mean, he was that, he was that sensitive to it. And, and you know, we, before things got really bad, we redirected my energy. But that became, it became a joke, and a joke, but a very serious one. Whenever he would ask how I was, I would very often not answer. I wouldn't say, I'm fine. I would say, I don't know. How am I? I mean, that's really how we want to be sitting with... I mean, I had the opportunity to play that out in person, and I didn't always say that. But when you would ask me in a certain way, or when I myself really didn't know, I don't know. I think I'm okay. What do you think? And sometimes he would say, you're fine. Often he would say, you're fine. Oh, that's good. I'm so relieved. Or else I would say, who's been writing you a letter? You know, what am I doing that I don't know about? Um, But that's how we have to be with, with Divine Mother. You know, not that not that we throw ourselves and say, "I have no idea who I am," but just you know me better than I know myself. What I want is what you know is what I need. We can't always be that free. This is my list, but what I really want is what you know that I need. And this is, of course, becomes a whole attitude toward everything. Oh, I didn't know that I needed this, but what do you know? You must have thought it was a good idea. Somewhere God thought this was a good idea, so this happens. You know, it looks like a bad idea to me, but he must have known it was a good idea because God knows us better than we know ourselves. But if we're in the habit of asserting our own will too strongly and being too certain about what we know, it's, not, it, it, this is, it's, it's humility is actually the word. It's not lack of confidence. It's not lack of... Humility is self-honesty, you see. So... You know what you know. You are what you are. But we're humble about it. This, hmm. I remember this man once. He, was, he, was, uh, he, he, he just blew in and blew out of Ananda. He didn't last long. He was a good man, though. He had a lot of personal power. And he had the potential to be a really good devotee. But he just he didn't have humility. But he was on his way to do something or another. And I, he sort of said to Swami, Well, I guess if Master doesn't want me to do it, he'll stop me. And... Then the guy went out of the room and then he left. And Swami turned to me and said, why should he? Why should, with an attitude like that, why should he stop him? You know, if you don't want me to do it, sir, stop me. It's, that's, that, that's, there's no magnetism in that. If you say, well, you know, you have to, it always, but it has to be in every day because this is not, you can't fool it. This is not where you can just look good. You have to actually just be yourself. When you finally get that, it's so relaxing. <laughs> that it's just a waste of time. And try, meanwhile, he says, to rise above the pairs of opposites, pleasure and pain, heat and cold, sickness and health. Free yourself from the consciousness of individuality, of being separate from everyone and everything. Keep your mind fixed steadfastly on him. Repeat inwardly, as unaffected as the motionless spirit. Remain inwardly as unaffected as the motionless spirit you want to become. He alone is what you really are. His bliss alone is your true nature. 
What do we come back to? Even-minded and cheerful. It's just like whatever's going on, just always have that slightly other quality. I've commented... uh, uh, it, the odd way I ended up putting it is that I've never, I never saw Swami rattled. I saw him intense on many occasions, but he was always there. Was he? He he never moved off his center. Sometimes he moved with a tremendous amount of power and force from that center. But he was never he he was never. You never had that feeling when you were with him that he wasn't exactly where he needed to be. Even when I'm thinking of some times when he was. You know, really struggling against physical uh, debility and and uh, sort of a psychic force that was he was trying to accomplish something, and there was a well a satanic force because often that's what he himself would call it. Like for example, when he was writing the oratorio, which was now however many years ago that was, he started having really serious heart problems at that time, and his. Um, he was becoming uh, bloated. Is that what happens? You know, when the heart's not pumping properly, then uh, liquid builds up. So he was getting puffy, puffy ankles and so on like that and shortness of breath. And and he just, he was not going to stop working on that because he felt truly that this was a, 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 a satanic force trying to stop that piece of music from being created. And he was he was the battleground because he was the instrument that was going to bring it into manifestation so there was this dark force that was trying to uh, stop him, and because his will is so strong, it wasn't able. They weren't able to attract his mind, uh, attack his mind. You know, they couldn't. They couldn't persuade him not to do it, but they could try to stop his body. I don't know who they is exactly, but there is a demonic force. There's a dark force that, and very often when Swami is about to do something really expansive and important, but he was so intense. You know, and just there was no room. Uh, I remember when he was finishing the um, the television shows he did in India at the beginning. I guess on the Bhagavad Gita, I think was the first round that he did, or maybe it was conversations. And he was determined to finish, um, but he was so exhausted. And I was in India, and I I fixed him breakfast. And when I came back, he was just sitting there. He, he literally did not have the energy to lift the spoon. I said, you haven't touched your breakfast. And then I looked at him and I said, you don't have the energy to lift the spoon, do you? He, just, he was just sitting there like that. And in that context, I said to him, you don't have to finish these. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. Yeah, I said, oh, I'm on the wrong side of this one. Yes, he said, and I don't appreciate it. Well, I never did that again. But it was like, I'm going to finish this. So that's when I say I never saw him rattle, that doesn't mean I never saw him at the limit of his force to make something happen. But he he just stood in that center and was just going to push through it until he did. And, you know, he... We managed to get a little food in him, and he went in and started those programs. And the more he did them, the stronger and stronger he got. And he finished the day full of energy because it, it wasn't, he wasn't really debilitated. It was just that force trying to stop him. And it happened over and over again, over and over and over again in his life, repeatedly. He nearly died in 2009. Was that it? When he did the, is that when he did the Nyaswami order? Was it 2009? 
Yeah, he, he, he spent several weeks there, nearly dead. And then he was healed in a matter of a couple of minutes. And he started Nanaya Swami order. He, by the evening he was writing the book about that. And he just said, as he came up from that, he said, ah, this is what Satan was trying to stop. But as soon as he broke through and started doing it, then all of a sudden he was fine. I mean, just completely. But, but in the midst of all that, and I mean, his life is more dramatic than ours, but in the midst of it, even when, you know, he was just like, I don't know how I can take another step. I don't know how I can go on. I, I have, I'm too tired to even eat my breakfast, you know. Please just help me up from this chair. But he never, he never gave up. You know, you just keep, like that, always a part of you is just kept inwardly like that. And even if, even if what you're watching is your own emotions going berserk, still, just hold a little piece of you. Wow, look at her, she's really upset today, isn't she? <laughs> I wonder how this is going to end. Okay, any other comments or thoughts before we call it a night? We started on number 10, we finished in number 10. Number 10 was a long one. Yeah, kind of like last time, except we did finish number 10 this time. No class next week because it's Spiritual Renewal Week and most of us are away. Many of us are away. I'm away, so there's no class. Actually, it doesn't matter how many of you are away. I'm away. (laughs) Okay. My pleasure.